Good morning. Can I uh, get everybody's attention for a minute? I uh, want to uh, welcome all of you to the uh, biannual Cato New York Seminar. Um, I think I know most everybody here, but uh, I am John Allison, the very recently retired president and CEO of Cato. Um, we do appreciate very much you being here, and we have a lot of sponsors in the room, and we very much appreciate your sponsorship. Um, thanks to your support, Cato is doing extremely well. Uh, we've been uh, very pleased with the financial support that you've provided. In fact, over the last uh, two years, our sponsorships have increased 64%, which is a pretty amazing number. Thank you for that. Uh, that has allowed us to increase our production across a lot of fronts. We are producing more op-eds, more uh, television, radio interviews, uh, more blog posts, uh, more uh, uh, impact with students. Our website had 10 million uh, hits uh, last year. Our Facebook and Twitter, those kind of uh, outreaches are growing very rapidly. Uh, we produced, in my view, three uh, world-class books about uh, libertarian ph philosophical ideas, the most important one of which is, of course, uh, David Bowe's book, The Libertarian Mind, which David will be talking to you about today. Um, Impact is one of those more difficult things to measure uh, in a long-term uh, think tank kind of organization, but we did have a lot of impact this year. Uh, one of the things that stands out is Michael uh, Cannon, our healthcare scholar, was the leading factor in getting Obamacare back to the Supreme Court. Our constitutional studies group, after 30 years of work, um, has at least ignited the debate on the issue of whether the Constitution has so-called enumerated powers, which restrict what Congress can do, and the Supreme Court is paying some attention to that. In fact, in the last session of the Supreme Court, of amicus briefs that we filed that made it to the court, we won 10 out of 11. We've been very actively involved in, of course, the debate over civil liberties, which is a very important Cato issue, and things like NSA spying and the IRS uh, crazy uh, rules that they, uh, they have. We've been long time working on the issue of overcriminalization and the issue of policeman militarization, issues that threaten all of our civil liberties. So we've had a very impactful uh, year, and all that's been possible thanks to your support. So the good news is Cato's doing very well, and even better news is I think Cato has an extremely bright future, and the most exciting thing is we have a new leader. On April 1st, uh, Peter Gettler became the new president and CEO of, of Cato. I, I will say it was a long and careful search process. We talked and evaluated a lot of people, and I'm personally extremely pleased that Peter has agreed to accept this role. Peter uh, has an undergraduate and graduate degree at MIT. He was very successful in the investment banking business, rising up in the ranks and uh, at, at the, near the end of his career, having over 1,000 people working for him in a very successful operation. At the end of 2008, Peter decided to, to retire early, I think partly to spend a little time with his teenage uh, daughters who are now uh, through college, but also primarily to focus on the freedom movement. And he's been very actively involved in that regard, including making a lot of speeches internationally for Atlas uh, Economic Society uh, at, at free market think tanks throughout the world. 
He's been uh, a sponsor of Cato for 15 years. He joined our board last year. Um, he brings a unique set of characteristics that frankly are difficult to find. Uh, he is a highly passionate and very energetic libertarian. He understands libertarian ideas. He understands Cato's philosophy and policies. He has a uh, extraordinary talent to speak. He's an excellent writer, and he brings managerial and leadership uh, abilities to our organization. So I'm personally very excited to have uh, Peter as our future leader, and it's my pleasure to introduce Peter Gattler. Peter. John, thanks so much. Mic on? Can you hear me? Yes. Great. Great to be here with you. Um, as John mentioned, I did uh, leave my career about seven years ago, primarily to get more involved in the freedom movement, liberty movement. I thought I was, that was going to entail a full-time job. I was thinking of going to law school and, and uh, studying constitutional law. I actually took the LSAT, applied to law schools, was deciding where to go, and I thought, I like constitutional law. I'm not sure I like procedure, torts, contracts. Maybe I better wait and see if this is really what I want to do. And so what happened was I didn't uh, take a full-time position with uh, a think tank or a public interest law firm. I started freelancing as a volunteer, and I joined the board of Atlas, and just last year joined the board of Cato, and uh, did a lot of international traveling. Um, meeting libertarians and people working to expand freedom in their countries, um, which was a great experience. And then it was at the last Cato seminar at the Waldorf, I think early November, when John pulled me aside after lunch and said, Peter, I'd like to talk to you about maybe getting more engaged in Cato. And so he and I had lunch two or three weeks later, and I was pretty surprised when John told me that I was, uh, he thought I was at the top of his list to succeed him as the president and CEO of Cato. And I think John was equally surprised when I told him I was all over it. Um, I, reading his body language, I think he, he thought that I was uh, enjoying what I was doing, which I was. Um, but uh, I just thought that this is one of the most important positions in the freedom movement, and there was no way I could say no. And my wife actually uh, you know, did the gut check, because she knew that I enjoyed what I was doing and felt like I was having an impact. And so she asked me, are you sure that you want to become, you know, go return to a full-time full job? And I wanted to sh tell her what a no-brainer I thought this was. And I thought the best way I could explain it to her is that uh, compared to my relationship with the state, my relationship with your mother is completely awesome. <laughs> and so I wanted to get to work to try to make my relationship with the state as good as my relationship with my mother-in-law. Um, but uh, it's truly exciting to be at Cato. Um, you know, I'm joining a group of smart and driven, dedicated people who are doing the most important work on the planet, and that's trying to make their country and their world a freer place, trying to expand liberty, trying to bring the spiritual and material blessings of liberty to people who don't even know that they're looking for it. And that is, you know, very inspiring you know, inspiring job description. You know, our country, in Washington in particular, as I'm finding out, I've been living there two weeks, a few nights on the couch, a few nights in bed, um, 
is full of, uh, uh, as David Bowes said in a presentation he made a few years ago, there are always people who are trying to exercise power over the lives of others. And there are many people in our country and in Washington who are heirs to that tradition. And that is an ignoble, ignoble and dishonorable tradition. And the people in this room are heirs to a very honorable tradition. And we are part of, uh, we're taking our inspiration from a long line of heroes who have worked to expand freedom and liberty. And in the process, we were having a discussion at dinner last night. We talked about how uh, you know, the Enlightenment, how freedom was uh, discovered. And people began to, uh, government began to be limited. And the correlation, if you just have eyes to see, the correlation between that event and the wondrous world we live in today, the modern, modern age, is, uh, is a pretty strong correlation. And in this case, correlation and, and causality um, are both there. Um, so I'm really proud, couldn't be prouder to be joining you know, that line of, of, uh, of heroes and trying to, uh, to continue, continue their work to make, uh, make our country and our world freer. Cato has meant a lot to my family and me, as John mentioned. We've been supporters for 15 years, and uh, Cato has uh, um, a place at the top of our, uh, our non the nonprofit organizations that we support. Um, mostly we focus on the freedom movement. We also, uh, multiple sclerosis research is a priority for us as well, and MS Research and Cato are probably, have been about equal in terms of our support until Ed shook me down for the capital campaign a couple of years ago. And at that time, Cato became a higher priority. And it's for a couple of reasons. One, the fight for liberty and freedom is so important philosophically to my family. Cato also has always made me feel as a donor like I was a member of the team. Um, felt that I was actually in the fight, not just a donor, but a participant, and that's been pretty important. And then Cato has had a very um, big impact on the evolution of my own thinking as a libertarian. Uh, at 9-11, uh, my office was the closest building to ground zero that wasn't structurally damaged, and the first visitor I had after 9-11 was David Bowes, who was coming to thank me for a recent contribution. And uh, I took Dave up, David up to... Uh, our cafeteria on the top floor, and we looked out over Ground Zero. And he was talking about how fearful he was, what was gonna happen to civil liberties in the United States in the wake of this attack and our response. And I have to say, at that time, that was not something that was foremost in my mind. I've always uh, held similar positions to Cato on those issues, but in terms of prioritization, uh, they weren't at the top. And like many people, I was always more focused on economic issues. And I have to say, in the 14 years since that day, uh, David's fears have come to be realized in a pretty significant way. And you know, I just, that's just one of many examples in which Cato has, has impacted me. But mostly I care about Cato because of the people. You've got a group of really smart and very passionate folks who are dedicated to, as I said, trying to make the world, the world freer. I've been a big consumer of Cato's work over the years, publications, books, podcasts, conferences, and I've always been struck by the high intellectual quality of the product and also the, the steadfast adherence to principle, which I think has been you know, a hallmark of Cato. 
One of the things that we learned a couple of years ago when the conflict about, over Cato's future was going on, is that we heard from people all across the philosophical spectrum about how they didn't always agree with Cato, but when Cato said something, they knew they really meant it, and they knew that it was really what Cato believed. And I believe that is a very powerful weapon and asset in persuading others of our point of view. And our ability to persuade is, uh, is ultimately how we are going to, to, uh, to change the world. Um, as I mentioned, I've, I've done a lot of traveling. I've visited about three dozen countries over the last few years and often meeting with libertarians and, and, and free marketers. And everything from very established organizations with dozens of people on staff and sustainable budgets and having an impact to one person trying to start an organization, trying to start a think tank, trying to stock shacks in Namibia with works of classical liberalism, Hayek, Smith, Mises, Friedman. Um, and what I'm always struck visiting these people is how the United States has often been a beacon of freedom for them, but they betray to us now a feeling that we're blowing it. But what they don't betray is uh, any sense that Cato's blowing it, because I've been stunned at the impact Cato has on the broader global freedom movement. For many of the people I've visited, Cato is an example that they want to emulate. It's their inspiration and their aspiration. And that is, uh, I think, an indicator of the fact that Cato has an importance in the global liberty movement that transcends uh, its importance on the policy debate here in the US. Um, I think a great example of that is I was very moved three years ago when Mao Yuxia, a man who I last saw at the Mont Pelerin Society Conference in Hong Kong in September, a man whose quiet dignity and grace pervades a room just by his presence and uh, camouflages, I think, to some degree, his courage in being a classical liberal in Mao's China. And three years ago, when he stood up on the stage in Washington, receiving the Friedman Prize, and spoke of, quote, our shared Cato values, unquote. That was just a great example of what Cato means to people who are fighting for liberty in really difficult places. And at that time made me exceptionally proud as a, as a donor. Cato does have substantial impact. I think that it is often a case that we see the state expanding, we see government in the United States pervading every corner of our lives, and it's natural to believe, to sometimes uh, feel a sense of futility about our ability to change things. But I think Cato, there's no doubt of the impact Cato has had on policy after policy. Um, you know, would libertarianism be seen as a credible political philosophy without Cato? Without Cato, would we be learning to live with and reconcile ourselves to Obamacare, or would Obamacare be back at the Supreme Court and, uh, and its future in question? Cato has flagged important issues long before anyone else was paying attention. Um, police misconduct, civil asset forfeiture, foreign military adventurism, 
corporate welfare, the list goes on and on. And uh, often it takes a while for these things to get traction, but there are so many areas where Cato has had uh, a dramatic impact. And just because we don't live, yet live in the kind of world that we want for our children and grandchildren, doesn't mean that Cato isn't having an impact and that the world wouldn't look a lot different without Cato. There are three things that, uh, biases and viewpoints that I come to this position with. One is that uh, I want to make Cato better. And uh, that doesn't mean that Cato is not already great, because I, I think you know that I believe it is. But born of experience, we all know that great organizations can become even greater. And if that we are going to roll back the state, and my relationship with the state is going to begin to look like my relationship with my mother-in-law, Cato's influence is going to have to become more powerful. Um, we're going to have to uh, ex exert uh, influence um, more persuasively. And I think that we can do that. Uh, my second bias is that in beginning to meet folks, supporters of Cato, people on staff, they're very curious about what are your plans for Cato, what's your vision? And I would be lying if I told you that I didn't come to Cato with, uh, without ideas for things that we can do differently or maybe better. But I'm also coming at it as a, as a Hayekian, I'm coming at it with some humility that uh, I haven't worked in the think tank before. I think there is a benefit to having someone with a fresh perspective and who hasn't been in the think tank world um, joining an organization like Cato. But I think there's also great uh, benefit to taking advantage of the knowledge that already exists at Cato. And I, I see it as a kind of a collaboration between an experienced perspective of the people who have been on staff for so long and a fresh perspective that I'm bringing where we'll discuss, collaborate, and figure out ways that we can be more impactful. The third and probably strongest bias that I brought to bring to Cato is, as I said earlier, Cato's great asset is its intellectual integrity. At our last board meeting, David Bowes visited and explained or reiterated that Cato is an independent, nonpartisan, libertarian think tank, and why each of those words was relevant and important. And I think that because when Cato speaks, it has credibility, that is a very um, valuable element in our ability to persuade others. And I also think uh, being committed to nonpartisanship is also critical because when once you descend into a political context where a person from one party sits across from a person from another party, your ability to change minds is mortally wounded. And uh, I joined the board of Cato last year. Ed, Ed wasn't the only leader of Cato who was uh, effective in getting money out of me. John invited me to join the board, and that came with an increased financial commitment, which was not uh, necessarily easy for, for us. But I thought I, I really did want to join the board because I knew a transition was coming. And I wanted to have a seat at the table and a voice to ensure that the commitment to philosophical integrity and to nonpartisanship um, was sustained at Cato. At the time, I didn't know that, that I had no idea that that investment would be completely wasted because when that discussion came, I'd have to recuse myself. Um, but uh, that is something that, uh, you know, through, uh, through Ed's leadership, through John's leadership, and uh, I'm committed through my leadership is, is not going to change at, at, uh, at Cato. There are a few people that I want to thank before I conclude my remarks. And because I'm, 
I've only been at Cato a week and of being shoehorned into the schedule. We won't have time for Q&A today, so I hope to do that at a future date. But I did want to thank a few people. I want to thank Ed Crane, who, uh, you know, if Ed had not dedicated his life and his career to liberty, Cato as we know it wouldn't exist. Cato wouldn't exist. And, and without Cato, without Cato and without Ed's commitment, the cause of liberty would be well behind where it is today. And I also want to thank uh, John Allison, who uh, was, was willing to come out of retirement and step in to lead Cato at a very difficult time. And without him doing that, uh, Cato as we knew it and as Ed created it may not have, may not have survived as we knew it. And that is, uh, was an essential contribution. Um, and John has been uh, very supportive during the transition, will continue to be supportive during the transition, and uh, it's been a great experience getting to know him better and, uh, and working together. And then I also want to thank uh, Don and Julie Smith are here, and the Smith Family Foundation uh, is again generously making this event possible. And one of the things that I've found in my travels around the world is that uh, the Smith family support is, uh, is ubiquitous. When you attend conferences in Asia or see uh, freedom fighters going on road shows in, uh, in different parts of, of, uh, of Europe. And when I talked uh, about that long line of, uh, of heroes uh, who, whose uh, mantle we're trying to, uh, to pick up, uh, Don and Julie, you've set a very high bar for the, for the rest of us. Um, And finally, I want to thank all, all the donors who are here, without whom Cato's important work would, be, would not be possible. And one of the, uh, um, you know, I'm, jo I'm joining Cato as a mission, not as a job. If it were my personal choice, I'd rather be at lunch having a glass of wine and not having to stand up in front of hundreds of uh, very smart and very discerning people in the audience. Um, but I'm doing this because I want to, uh, to make uh, our world better for my children and my grandchildren. I know that's why you are all here as well. But one of the elements of the job I know I'm going to relish is getting to know Cato's donors more closely. And, uh, and I look forward to doing that in, uh, in the coming years. So thanks very much. I haven't been looking at a watch, so I'm sure I'm driving our staff crazy because I've probably spoken too long. Nods. Um, but I, uh, I want to introduce our first speaker, David Bowes. When I mentioned Cato's steadfast adherence to, uh, uh, to principle, I think there's, there are few people, maybe no people, more responsible for that at Cato than, than David. David is uh, intelligent, erudite, articulate. Uh, he runs virtually the entire policy staff at Cato as most of you know, has been at Cato since nearly the beginning, since pre-Washington days in, in San Francisco. Uh, David's presentations at Cato events are always a personal highlight for me, and I know for many of you as well. The, uh, back in 1997, David uh, authored the book Libertarianism, A Primer. And as you know, it wasn't so needed back then, because we had just been informed that the era of big government was over. But 
we know the era of big government was never over, and it came roaring back in, in, uh, in very compelling bipartisan fashion in the time since. So David's book is essential. We all know that books can be transformative experiences for, for bringing people into a movement. And John has observed for me that when he talks to people, he's been involved in many universities with students and people since he's been, been uh, leading Cato the last few years. Uh, there are three books that often get mentioned as, as having brought people to, uh, to libertarianism or get mentioned the most. Atlas Shrugged, Wealth of Nations, and Libertarianism, a Primer. And now David has completed uh, and published by Simon & Schuster a thoroughly updated version called The Libertarian Mind. And uh, it's just a very compelling statement of Cato's vision of libertarianism and uh, makes a wonderful gift for your friends who may not, uh, may not agree with you or may not see eye to eye with you. I always ask myself, you know, why don't other people see what we see? Because it seems so obvious. And giving someone who doesn't agree with you David's book, it's just a very, uh, it's, it's hard to disagree with, uh, with uh, his assertions the way, he, the way he puts them forth. So without uh, more delay, David. Thank you, Peter. I look forward to working with you. And uh, like uh, Peter said, I appreciate all of you making it possible for me to write this book and to have been on the road recently talking about it, especially, uh, as we always say, those of you with the coveted red name badges. Uh, if you have a red name badge, that means you're a Cato sponsor. If you don't have a red name badge, that can be remedied. Any of our staff can help you become a Cato sponsor, and you won't be embarrassed at your next Cato seminar. <laughs> this is a great time to be a libertarian. Uh, everybody's talking about libertarianism for the first time I can remember. A lot of the talk is pretty hostile, but at least they're talking about it. Uh, both the right and the left have been on the airwaves uh, just this week denouncing libertarianism. A colleague said to me the other day, you could argue that in 2008 the American people rejected the social conservative and neoconservative foreign policy agenda of the Republicans. In 2014, they rejected the big spending, big government agenda of the Democrats. And maybe they're looking for a new public philosophy. And I have a new public philosophy. So I hope people will be interested in that. Um, I do think that a lot more Americans are libertarian than realize it. If you read Paul Krugman's blog yesterday, he wrote that uh, there are no libertarians in America, no libertarian intellectuals, and no libertarian voters, uh, and that this would be a problem for Rand Paul. Several of us, including me on the Cato blog, have responded and pointed out that, I know you're a Nobel laureate and all, but it almost seems like you wrote this without doing any research. Um, there are a lot of Americans who hold basically libertarian views. I think there are more Americans who hold such views than realize it. Um, we know that there are a lot of people who say, I'm fiscally conservative and socially liberal. David Brooks wrote in the New York Times a couple of uh, weeks ago about his view that swing voters in the upcoming election will be people who don't think redistribution is the path to economic growth, and don't know why a presidential candidate would launch his campaign at Jerry Falwell's university. 
If you fall into either one of those categories, or you have friends who fall into those categories, then they just might be a libertarian, and you should tell them about that. One of my goals with the book, The Libertarian Mind, is to make those people, these tens of millions of Americans, who tend to think the Democrats spend too much and the Republicans are too mean-spirited and get involved in too many wars, tens of millions of people who hold those views are broadly speaking libertarian, and I want them to become aware that the term for their views is libertarian. They may be moderate libertarians. Uh, we talk a lot about center-right and center-left. They may be center-libertarian voters, but that libertarianism is the theme that ties their views together. So uh, I don't have too much time here, but let me say a few things about the ideas in the book. Because the book is not about politics, although it has a sort of framing in contemporary politics and policy, but the core of the book is basic ideas of libertarianism. And let me take a moment to talk about three of them that I often talk about when I'm speaking to college students and, and uh, other people. The first key idea is individual rights. People have rights because we're people. We don't have to get them from some government, from some king. Um, libertarians disagree sometimes about where these rights come from. Some say they come from God, our God-given rights. Some say they come from nature or the use of reason to examine human nature and human needs. The Declaration of Independence kind of finesses that by saying nature or nature's God. Um, some derive their understanding of individual rights from a study of economics, some from a study of history. They discover governments always push to expand their power at the expense of freedom, and therefore we need a strict system of protection of rights. What libertarians agree on is that rights are imprescriptible. That is, they are not prescribed by any human agency, not by a king, not by a parliament, not by Congress, not by the Supreme Court, not even by the Constitution. Everybody should carry the Cato pocket Constitution in their pocket, but you should not say when you pull it out to win an argument, the Constitution gives me the right to do that. The Constitution protects your right to do that, which you already had before the Constitution was written. The second key theme is spontaneous order. And if you've taken a political theory class, you know that they talk about normative and positive theories. Well, individual rights is a normative theory. It says what's right, what ought to be, what ought to be understood. Spontaneous order is a positive theory. It's a, it posits the way the world works. You don't have to be a libertarian to understand spontaneous order. You just have to see how the world works. And what the theory of spontaneous order says is that most order in society seems planned. It took a lot of planning to set this event up today. It took more planning to get this book written and published. It took a lot more planning uh, to build the Waldorf Astoria, to build computer networks and financial networks that span the globe. And so we look at that and we say, wow, the, more, the bigger you want, uh, the more planning you have to do. But most of the major institutions in society 
happened spontaneously. They evolved by human action, but not by any human design. And that is the tough thing for people to see, and especially, I think, for intellectuals, who, after all, are about organizing and coordinating information, planning systems. They have trouble recognizing spontaneous order. But let's look at some major institutions in society. Language. Nobody sat down and designed the English language. It has evolved. Um, I'm sort of a prescriptivist when it comes to arguments about the English language. I say there's right and wrong ways to use the language. I had an unfortunate argument with a young writer at the Cato Institute recently who thought it was a matter of opinion whether you could say between you and I. No, it's not a matter of opinion. It's wrong. You need to change it. And he came back to me. Um, and he said, well, I looked in Steven Pinker's book, A Sense of Style, and it says that this is a pedantic point that you don't have to follow. And I said, well, then Steven Pinker is dead to me. Um, <laughs> it's wrong. However, language does evolve. And someday, we may say between you and I, um, there are languages that have actually been designed. The most famous is Esperanto. It's designed on a very intelligent principle. Let's take elements of a lot of world languages. Let's find common themes. What can everybody pronounce? What kind of grammar does everybody understand? And let's create a language that will fit more people in the world, that everybody can talk to each other. Languages like that have two things in common. They are designed by one or a small group of human beings, and no one speaks them. The languages people speak are the languages that spontaneously evolved. Think about law. Today we think that law is made by Congress or by the state legislature or maybe by the Supreme Court. But the earliest law, the core of our law even today, what's now known as the common law, evolved. My tree fell on your property. Who's responsible for the damage? And people turned to neighbors to settle disputes like that. Some of those neighbors came to be recognized as wise and came to be known as judges. And one of the things judges did from the beginning was follow precedent. What did we say the last time a tree fell on somebody's property? How did we settle it then? Well, it'll be, it'll be a better world if we know that that's the way we'll settle it each time. And that's how the common law evolved until the government took it over and started making regulations and rules. Money. People think Ben Bernanke and Janet Yellen create money, and they do create a lot of it. However, money originally solved problems for people. I have apples, you have fish, but it turns out you don't like apples. Now how are we going to make a trade? Well, maybe we could find a third or a fourth person to join our trade, and at that point it becomes a lot easier if we have some common unit of exchange, and money evolves, gold, silver, sometimes other things. And then, again, government stepped in. Government said, you know, money will be most respected if it has my picture on it, the king said. Um, and if I issue it from my official mint, and I will take just a small, the tiniest sliver of the gold for the service of providing you with money that you already had, but now you're getting from me. Um, and of course, what we found out was that kings usually discovered you could take a tiny sliver the first year, and if nobody noticed, you could take a tiny sliver the next year, and eventually the coin weighs a lot less than an ounce. It, when you turn it into paper, it's even easier. 
The dollar that, was, uh, that existed when the Federal Reserve was started 100 years ago has lost 95% of its value. I think I could tell if a gold coin lost 95% of its value. Um, and then there's the economy. In all of these areas, the institution works best when government stays out and allows people to interact. How does Paris get fed? That's the question Bastiat asked. Paris has no farms. How is there food every morning for the people of Paris? Who plans it? And of course the answer is no one plans it. That's why there's food. Because farmers discover there's a market, farmers discover there's a growing market, maybe for milk, maybe a slowing market for butter, so they make more milk and less butter. Um, Constantly, every day, hundreds, thousands of decisions made by each person in the economy, these days that's 10 billion people, cause society's resources to flow in the directions that will satisfy the most human needs. And when government steps in to affect that process, it interrupts spontaneous order. I have a section in the book titled Government's Discoordination. The whole problem of the economy is coordination of millions and billions of different plans, and what government does is it discoordinates. It interrupts the process of cooperation and coordination. Individual rights, spontaneous order, and the third key idea is limited government. Um, Limited government to protect our rights and to allow the spontaneous order to work. In the United States, we typically say constitutionally limited government. We understand that we have our rights. In order to protect our rights, we delegated some powers to the government. In the Constitution, in Article I, Section 8, we enumerated the powers we were delegating. And by delegating and enumerating the powers, we limited them not as perfectly as the founders hoped, but compared to most of history and most of the world, still some understanding here of delegated, enumerated, and thus limited powers. Government is essential to protect our freedoms, but it must be limited in order to protect freedom. There are a lot of other themes in the book, individualism, pluralism, toleration, civil society, the rule of law, the importance of peace, but those are sort of the basic ones, I think, that I like to talk about a lot of places. I was asked once by some skeptics, what's the most important libertarian accomplishment ever? And I thought for a minute, and I said, the abolition of slavery. And they listened and said, okay, name another. <laughs> I thought the abolition of slavery was pretty good. I thought that if you had the abolition of slavery on your resume, you were prepared to meet your maker. But they said, name another one. So I thought a little more carefully, and I said, bringing power under the rule of law. That is the truly revolutionary libertarian achievement. The world has always known power from the first men who were stronger than others to those who came up with the idea of clubs and then guns. The world has always known people seeking power over others. The challenge, the revolutionary achievement, 
was to bring this power under the rule of law. And note that doesn't even necessarily mean government law. There's the common law. There are agreed upon constraints. There are clearly unwritten laws in both Britain and the United States that constrain what the government can do. And we're shocked when politicians break those unwritten laws, but they have some effect. How do we limit, how, how do we limit power? Well, we have the Constitution delegated, enumerated, and limited powers. We have limitations on the executive. We have limitations, and we should have more, on what the legislature can do. We have constraints, and we're talking a lot about these these days, on the military and the police. What are body cameras about except finding a way to constrain the power of the police within the bounds of the law? And we have vigilant citizens, and all of us are a part of that aspect of bringing power under the rule of law. This is what the levelers and John Locke and the American founders fought for. It's what the protesters in 1989 were fighting for. It's what Rand Paul filibustered for. It's what friends of ours, as Peter was saying, in far more troubled countries like Venezuela and Hong Kong and China and Egypt and Brazil are fighting for, constraining power within the bounds of law. It's what we should all fight for, and I thank all of you for being part of that fight and making it possible for some of us to, to fight that fight full time. Thank you very much. All right, I know we're a little off on the schedule, but I have a few minutes, I think, for questions. If people have questions about Cato or the book or what I've just said, uh, please raise your hand. And we'll bring a microphone around to you. All right, in the back. About 15 years ago, somebody asked me who I thought epitomized libertarian ideals, and I didn't hesitate to say, Jesse the Body Ventura, who famously said he wants to keep the Democrats out of the boardroom and the Republicans out of the bedroom. Do we need a libertarian party for the, to have these goals go forward, or do you think we could do it within either the Republican or the Democratic Party? Well, being in a think tank, I don't tell people how to vote, uh, but we have a libertarian party. It's been around for 30, uh, almost 40 years now. I guess 40 years, yeah. Um, and it has sort of revealed that despite a lot of innate libertarianism among Americans, Americans also have an innate distrust of third parties. Uh, they don't much think third parties make sense, and there are lots of legal constraints on third parties. Um, to get a presidential candidate on the ballot in the United States, you probably have to spend at least a million dollars just getting on the ballot. Um, it's very difficult to raise money in small units. Uh, you don't get a lot of uh, million dollar contributions when you're a third party candidate, but super PACs could change the world, uh, change the way the world works. Um, there, are, um, uh, there are all kinds of constraints about being able to reach the public. Your, can your candidates don't get in debates, things like that. So. It seems to me that much as I appreciate the people who are trying to work within the Libertarian Party, it doesn't seem to be working. Uh, the only way a third party candidate can succeed, apparently, is be like Ross Perot, be a billionaire and bring your billions to the campaign. And 
then you can get noticed, but otherwise it's very difficult. So there are libertarians who are in the Republican Party. There are a few in the Democratic Party. There are a lot of libertarians who are doing political things, but not partisan things, like running issue campaigns. Referendums and initiatives, you have less opportunity to that in New York than you do in some states, uh, for term limits or school choice or tax cuts or uh, reducing penalties for drug use, all those kinds of things can be done by initiative. All right, I see some questions up front here. Good morning, thanks for your comments. Um, I loved your uh, paradox about how does Paris get fed? That really thought provoking. And I'm an entrepreneur and I, I always go back to the Tocqueville and entrepreneurial being, you know, entrepreneurship being the engine of America and our competitive advantage globally. Can you talk a little bit more about business and how Paris gets fed and entrepreneurship in America? Well, that would be a long topic. Um, let me just say, uh, certainly not my uh, original uh, formulation, Frederick Bastiat's essays talked about how Paris gets fed, and Henry Hazlitt updated that in the 1940s in his book Economics in One Lesson. Um, one of the things that I uh, left out of my talk, one of the themes that I mentioned in the book is the virtue of production. I think it is part of the human experience to produce and achieve and accomplish. And there is a sense in America and in the rest of the world, but especially in America, that producers should be honored and should be allowed to keep what they produce. This goes back absolutely to Andrew Jackson. What was Andrew Jackson's movement about? It was that they thought there were parasites, if I may say in New York as well as Washington, the bankers and the moguls and the cronies who were living off the work of the working man. Um, Ayn Rand's books certainly touch on this theme, but it goes way back before that. There was a libertarian class analysis before Marx that said there are two classes in society, the taxpayers and the tax consumers, the people who produce, who make, the people who take. I understand there's a sign at Trenton, New Jersey, Trenton makes, the world takes. We have a sign outside Washington that says the world makes, Washington takes. Um, that's our relationship with the world. Entrepreneurship is the engine that makes that happen, and not all entrepreneurs are as successful as Steve Jobs. Some entrepreneurs are just people who realize that there's room for a dog walking service in a community that suddenly has a lot of two-income couples. Entrepreneurs who realize that there's no good pizza in my neighborhood and they could bring some there. But there are also entrepreneurs who do bring great new ideas. And the main thing we want to do is keep the economy open so that entrepreneurs don't face a lot of regulations and licensing and obstacles to getting started and don't face burdensome taxes once they start making money. And that's what Washington has a lot of trouble understanding. They think the way you encourage entrepreneurship is set up a subsidy program. I was just listening to an NPR report this morning on the, how the price of solar energy is falling. And I'm like, oh, that's good. Any, any price of energy that falls, it's good for those of us who use energy. But then they start going through it. Okay, the Chinese are subsidizing the production of solar panels. Now that's fine with me. If the Chinese want to send me free stuff, that's, that's fine. But, so you got the Chinese subsidies, then you've got the American subsidies, the tax credits, all of that. So we don't know if the price of solar energy is actually falling. We're not testing that proposition. What we need is an economy with no protection for the incumbents, no bailout of the banks, no 
uh, no protection for the taxi guys who are already in business. Let Uber compete with them. No tariff protection for American businesses. Let them compete with the entire world. Um, and one thing we ought to keep in mind in terms of entrepreneurship is a lot of our entrepreneurs have been immigrants. And we do not want to close off America to either goods or ideas or people with ideas from the rest of the world. Is there one more over here? So how do we constrain power within the balance of the law in the executive office and stop daily um, executive overreach? Well, that's a big question. My colleague Gene Healy was in New York last week debating this. Uh, uh, one of these Intelligence Squared debates resolved that the president has exceeded his uh, powers. How do we constrain it? We remind the president that the Constitution says Congress shall declare war. That requires Congress to assert itself. And one of the problems here, um, it may have been Arthur Schlesinger who originally wrote, congressional acquiescence is just as much a problem as executive overreach. So we need members of Congress who will actually jealously guard their prerogatives. Unfortunately, they're kind of happy if the president makes the dangerous decisions and they don't have to. Um, people have tried going into court to sue the president, uh, both Clinton and Obama, and, and uh, I guess not Bush. Clinton and Obama both engaged in bombing without authorization from Congress. Members of Congress sued. The courts have said, hey, this is a problem for the political branches. If Congress doesn't like it, Congress can do something about it. And so they've said individual congressmen can't come in and sue. Um, so you want, to, you want to get Congress to insist. You want to get presidents on the record promising that they understand the role of the Constitution. Unfortunately, in 2007, Senators Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, and Joe Biden all told the Boston Globe that they did not believe the president had the authority to engage in military action without authorization from Congress, and obviously they became the team that then ignored those promises. So that's a challenge there. Um, constitutional constraints, legal constraints on the executive, and an executive that appreciates the Constitution. Ultimately, that's an important part of what we need. Um, we had a custom in this country, started by George Washington, that no president would serve more than two terms, but it was only a custom. And Franklin Roosevelt said, the country can't get along without me, so I'm gonna run for a third and a fourth term. And at that point, we made a law. Nobody can run for a third term. Um, but a president committed to being a constitutional president, the way George Washington understood the purpose of the presidency, he had an annotated constitution where he noted the things the president could do and the things that only Congress could do. I'm guessing no recent president has had a constitution annotated in such a way. Thank you very much for your attention. I'll be around here later. Thank you. Thank you, David. And there'll be copies of David, David's book available for uh, complimentary outside. Uh, one of my favorite parts of the book is when he relates in Bonfire of the Vanities how Sherman McCoy can't quite explain to his family what he does. And uh, I had very similar experience when I worked on Wall Street. I got my kids as far as they could say, my dad works with bonds. They're like stocks, only different. Um, hopefully, they'll have a better, hopefully they'll have an easier time with Cato. 
We're really proud to have Johan Norberg as a senior fellow at Cato. Johan is one of the most powerful communicators of our ideas, arguments, and values worldwide. His 2001 book, In Defense of Global Capitalism, and by capitalism he meant real capitalism, not the version we practice today, uh, I think can probably be safely called a classic at this point, and I think ignited a, uh, despite the fact that the title is defense, I think it, it ignited a, a, a surge in our movement where we didn't apologize for capitalism. We went on the offense and explained its, its, its moral and consequential superiority. Uh, in uh, the, his most recent book, Financial Fiasco, How America's Infatuation with Home Ownership and Easy Money Created the Economic Crisis, along with uh, John Allison's The Financial Crisis and the Free Market Cure, I can think can be counted as the two nonfiction works about the economic crisis. Most of the versions we read are like the Hollywood version based on a true story and we made everything else up. Johan, uh, my, my greatest memory of Johan was about 18 months ago at the Atlas Freedom Dinner when he related in a customarily articulate fashion uh, the changes in uh, the march of freedom over the last, uh, last decades and how this had changed so many lives. And he concluded, number one, freedom is winning. And I remember quite clearly, number two, freedom is awesome. And uh, he's with us today. He, uh, one of his activities is making videos and movies that explain our ideas and bring them to, uh, to a mass audience often in concert with uh, Bob Chitester and the Free to Choose Network. Uh, an example is 2013's Economic Freedom in Action, Changing Lives. And his most recent project, which he will discuss today, is uh, familiar to us, that uh, energy and power generation are critical for changing the uh, situation in the developing world. But now that we in the developed world have power and energy, <laughs> We want to put up all kinds of obstacles to prevent people who really need it from getting it. And I think that's the subject of, uh, of Johan's most recent project. So welcome, Johan Norberg. Most people in developing countries aspire to a richer, better life. These people know how we in the West live, and they refuse to be left behind. The highest standard of living the world has ever known has been built on an ever-increasing use of energy, and there is no end in sight. We've made great strides in making everything more energy efficient, from jumbo jets to television sets. But despite that, we've increased our use of energy. Not only do we fly more, but there's a TV on the back of the seat. Couldn't we all just cut back and learn to live with less energy? Why can't we live greener? reduce our consumption, buy local, and just travel less. Denmark wanted to maintain its high standard of living and reduce dependence on fossil fuels, so it bet its future on wind power. Should we follow in their footsteps? Or could massive solar, like this plant in Morocco, be the answer? Some believe that ethanol, as a biofuel, was going to help to solve our energy problems. Now it appears to be a dead end. But fracking, under these same fields, is now creating a boom in natural gas, especially here in the United States. It's the cleanest burning fossil fuel we've got, and it seems we're finding more of it every day. But can we live with the trade-offs? The most ambitious transformation of a country's energy sector is taking place right now here in Germany. 
the spectre of potential nuclear disaster has moved Germany away from nuclear and toward wind and solar energy, but not without unintended consequences. My name is Johan Norberg. I am a writer and an analyst born and raised in Sweden. Here in the United States, I encounter great concern about our growing need for energy and its costs, financial and environmental. Right now, we are relying heavily on fossil fuels, and a lot of people are concerned about global warming. How are we going to maintain our standard of living, reduce our impact on the planet, and still get power to the people? Life in this small German town was good, until a fateful government decision changed things forever. This is the beautiful historic town of Atterwasch. It lies in eastern Germany, close to the border with Poland. It's a small town with some 250 people. Atterwasch is deshalb so schön, weil es hier einen Haufen, weil es hier viel Grün gibt, viele Naturparks, es jede Menge Wälder, Wiesen und Äcker und es ist eigentlich für mich eigentlich die schönste Heimat, die es gibt. Christian Hauschka has lived in Atterwasch since he was seven, when the village was still part of East Germany. Eine Frau und zwei Kinder. Die Kinder sind zwei Jungs, zwei und fünf Jahre alt und sie, sie werden hier in Atterwasch groß und ich möchte, dass sie auch hier alt werden können. Father Matthias Behrendt ist der Pastor at the Lutheran Church, which was originally built in the 1200s. Viele Familien hier können ihren Besitz, ihren Familienbesitz zurückverfolgen über Jahrhunderte, dass also die Eltern und Großeltern und Voreltern schon diesen, auf diesen Höfen gelebt haben. Ich bin hier geboren, ich bin hier aufgewachsen. Ulrich Schulz owns the largest farm in the village. He has almost 500 head of cattle. Wir leben hier und haben ja, seit jeher unseren Lebensunterhalt mit der Landwirtschaft. Atalwasch hat einen sehr engen dörflichen Zusammenhalt. Das heißt, die Nachbarn unterstützen sich gegenseitig, besuchen sich, sind gegenseitig Taufpaten und befreundet. Ein sehr nettes Wohnklima. But to the dismay of the local residents, this town will be torn down. Why? Well, that's a complicated story, and it begins in the capital of Germany, Berlin. The most ambitious transformation of a country's energy sector is taking place right now here in Germany. It is called the Energiewende, the energy transition. After the nuclear disaster in Fukushima, Japan, the German government decided to abolish nuclear power, and it has shut down eight nuclear plants so far. At the same time, the German government wanted to reduce the use of fossil fuels, like coal. So it has been pushing aggressively for renewable sources of power. It has guaranteed the producers of solar and wind power a high fixed price for 20 years. It is a policy that has succeeded in expanding the renewable sector dramatically. This was in order that Germany would create world-leading companies, the Googles and Microsofts of wind farms and solar panels. These would be German jobs, German industry, and because the rest of the world would follow Germany, these would be dominant world companies too. But there has been a detour on the road to the renewable energy transition. The energy vendor in Germany is staggeringly expensive. It's not just expensive. And the price to be paid 
is mainly by German retail customers because the Germans essentially exempted much of their industry from the costs of their energy experiment and therefore dumped the costs on the retail side. Since the year 2000, electricity prices in Germany have increased by 80%. Official statistics show that almost 7 million households spend more than 10% of their income on energy. You could say this is a cheap price to pay to accelerate innovation in solar. But actually, many German companies slashed the development departments and just produced and installed the same old solar panels to take advantage of the subsidy. Then these companies had trouble competing when the Chinese began producing similar solar panels at a much lower cost. The only way of protecting these European companies was to force protective tariffs on the Chinese. Stifling innovation and punishing the competition are not the only problems. When you start interfering with the market, it causes ripple effects throughout the system. When the wind blows, the cost is zero. When the sun shines, the cost is zero. But when the wind doesn't blow, and when the sun doesn't shine, you need something else on the system. That something else used to be a combination of nuclear and gas. They closed the nuclear, and so the question is, what about the gas? It only runs when the sun isn't shining and when the wind doesn't blow. This wrecks the economics of a gas station. So what do the Germans turn to for backup capacity? Coal. And so the result is that German electricity is now up to 45% generated from coal. It was supposed to be a green energy transition, but to power it takes even more coal than it used to. So the Germans dig more of it up wherever it is. Which brings us back to Atobash. Unfortunately, the town sits on a rich vein of lignite coal. It's some of the dirtiest coal in the world but necessary for Germany's energy transition. So the town's got to go. The whole town. Ja, was passiert hier mit dem Dorf, mit der Kirche, mit dem Friedhof? Es wird alles abgerissen. Die Kirche wird gesprengt, die Dörfer werden geschleift, die Leichen werden ausgebuddelt und umgebettet. Es werden neue Friedhöfe angelegt. This is the brown coal strip mine that will swallow up Atavash and two other neighboring villages. Das war ähm, ein großer Schlag für alle. Mein Vater ist 88 Jahre alt. Äh, wenn ich mit ihm spreche, der dreht sich um bei diesem Thema. Der sagt, ich kann es nicht hören, ich will es nicht hören, ich, ich verarbeite das gar nicht. Macht ja wenig Sinn, dann wieder dann noch mehr Braunkohle zu verbrennen, weil es ist ja keine Energiewende, dann ist es ja nur, dann ist es ja die Negierung von der Energiewende. Also für uns völlig unverständlich. Und äh, ja, für mich ist es einfach nur idiotisch. Der, der Umstieg aber in die, in die erneuerbaren Energien hat letztendlich in Deutschland überhaupt nicht funktioniert. Thank you very much. That was a short clip from Power to the People, now airing on PBS stations around the United States. I, I love writing books. It's one of my favorite occupations. Um, but I started making documentaries with Bob and the Free to Choose group after I got an email from someone in Britain. It was 2003, and I had just made my first documentary for UK Channel 4. 
about globalization. I had written a book on it, but now I had a one-hour show on the subject. And someone wrote to me saying, I used to be an anti-globalization activist, hated capitalism and free trade. You've completely changed my mind on all these issues with this show. And I almost replied in the first draft, look, that's just a one-hour show. You can't change all your views based on that. You need to get some more facts straight, read some books. And, but no, I realized that not everyone is interested in the book, in the statistics, in the data. They also need to understand why it's relevant. They need to understand, they need the human face and to see the human cost of making the wrong decisions. And that is why I'm now doing these shows to try to explain our ideas and illustrate them in that way. The world's biggest blackout in history, the biggest power cut, took place on July 31st, 2012 in India. A total of 32 gigawatts of generating capacity went offline and 620 million people lost power at the same time. I was in India briefly afterwards and asked people about it. And they, what was it like? Tell me. 620 million people, what, what's it like? And they told me, what power cut? Which blackout? What are you talking about? We didn't notice anything. Because if power is so unreliable, almost non-existent, power comes and goes. You know that you can't make any long-term decisions. You know you can't have big, important, costly machines running all the time if you don't have that power supply. So you don't. So when it's gone, you barely notice it. So we take it for granted in the rich world nowadays. But most people around the world can't do that. Um, you know, most people think it's, it's just the flick of a switch. They have no idea where it comes from. A Swedish woman was recently asked by a Swedish newspaper about, are you afraid of power cuts and blackouts? And she said, no, no, not at all. You see, I, I'm not that electricity dependent because I live and work in the city. <laughs> it's, just, it's something in the rural area, but here I don't need that much electricity because it's... It seems to, it, it's like magic, it's there all, all the time. We take it for granted, but it is the edifice of modern society. Having more power than you have personally, physically, is what makes the whole difference between, between what we used to be and what we are now. And just to give you one brief example, there's a Swedish professor of international health, Hans Rosling, who is an, a leftist of the old school who still believed in progress and technology. Recently, I gave a lecture and talked to the audience about when he was four years old and he saw his mother load a washing machine for the first time in her life. And he said, and I'm quoting, that was a great day for my mother. My mother and father had been saving money for years to be able to buy that machine. And the first day, it was going to use. Even be grandma was invited to see the machine. And grandma was even more excited. Throughout her life, she had been heating water with firewood, and she had hand-washed laundry for seven children. And now she was going to watch electricity do the work instead. So she pulled up a chair and watched the machine at work. My mother explained the magic with this machine. She said, now, Hans, we have loaded the laundry. The machine will make the work, and now we can go to the library. Because that's the magic of it. You put laundry into the machine, and what do you get out of it? You get books out of the machine, children's books. And mother got time to read for me. And she got also got books for herself. She managed to study English and learn that as a foreign language. And she read so many novels. And what we said, my mother and me, was, thank you, industrialization. Thank you, steel mill. Thank you, power station. And thank you, chemical processing industry that gave us time to read books. 
books, end of quote. And that's our story as well. Just recently, this has happened and changed the world. We start off this documentary by having a small tale of two cities, two different cities. Uh, I visited a poor, small village in the Atlas Mountains in Morocco, close to the Saharan Desert, where, where I met a delightful family with an important family in the village that lived close to nature and close to one another. And it looked like an enviable, nice, good life. But when I talked to the father about his life, he gave me a list of things that made his life unbearably hard. He said, I would want a simple water pump just to get access to decent water, just so that we could get a shower and wash off this sand once in a while. A possibility to irrigate the crops and get the agriculture here going. A refrigerator so that we could store the food. Electric lights so the kids could do the homework in the evening. A phone to stay in touch with others, including my eldest son who has left for university. The demands could all be summarized in one wish for the electric cables to finally make it all the way to their village. Around the world, 1.2 billion people lack access to electricity. 2.8 million people have to warm their house and cook their food with an open fire that create respiratory diseases and illnesses that kills something like half a million people annually in Africa alone, half of them children. Having access to modern energy sources is a matter of life and death. It's not just about convenience. Electricity makes hospitals functions, powers, agriculture, machines, the economy, communication, and transport. The difference it makes can be seen in the statistics. Villages in Bangladesh at the, that are electrified with the same pattern of illnesses and the same kind of economy as other villages without electricity have infant mortality rates that are 35% lower. A World Bank study concluded that for every million children born around the world, 8,000 children die because of a lack of electricity. Not far from the first village of Isidanistar lies the city of Tamayust, where they have light in the bathroom, they have refrigerators, they have water pumps, they could cook meals on a gas stove, they had cell phones and computers. Eid Brahim, the village imam in Tamayust, told me that electricity was not just about these conveniences. It has brought happiness to the village. And I quote, when we got electricity, it was like a big party in the village. People were happy with lights in the house. They were happy to watch television. They were happy with street lights, have refrigerators and appliances. Electricity brought everyone in the village so much happiness, end of quote. And more people are looking for that around the world. They want and they need more access to it. It'll be costly get, to get power to the people around the world. And one of those costs are environmental. But we have to ask ourselves, doesn't the world's poor deserve the same kind of life-changing benefits and technologies that power have brought to the developed world? And in the end, it really doesn't matter what we think because they are getting it anyway. They are fed up with living the kind of life that they did and they are going to need it. And that's why we need better energy sources, new energy sources that will power more and that will be greener in the future. How do we get that? That's another thing that we're looking into in this documentary and in the accompanying book. Because there's always this temptation, you know about it, to try and solve problems with a top-down solution, just finding the best solution and scaling it up and subsidizing it and making it happen everywhere at the same time. 
It's a natural instinct, but it's a very dangerous designer instinct, which really relates to what David said about how people think that everything that's big has got to have a big cause, something that the government does top down for everybody. Because the problem is when you give those privileges, those public funds to particular alternatives, you don't know that you give it to the right ones. You do know that you create problems for the alternatives that could have been there instead. What you do is that you take the decisions away from the millions of researchers, entrepreneurs, and consumers who are constantly experimenting with different alternatives and innovations and put it into the hands of a few bureaucrats and politicians and special interest groups. While that is good for us, I can't imagine it's a good way for the government to use taxpayers' money, as one of the investors in the now-defunct California solar company, Solyndra, put it when they got a very favorable government loan in 2009. It also changes the incentives and makes the companies more interested in appearance and in making the politicians happy. Trying to pick winners like that has often stuck us with the wrong solution at the cost of alternative solutions. Government is a crappy venture capitalist, even in energy. As Lawrence Summers put it, then Obama's chief um, economic advisor put it in relation to the Solyndra guarantee. And the history of modern energy policy is littered with government failures like that. They always think they have the bright new idea that will change everything. In the 1950s, it was nuclear power. President Eisenhower told everyone around the world to begin to develop um, nuclear for, for a peaceful use, which led to a top-down, premature rollout of a particular technology that was incredibly costly and brought with it some technological problems that caused new hazards. Rather than doing it step by step, trial and error, according to the steps that entrepreneurs, businesses, consumers, and researchers would have done. Even before the Harrisburg disaster, there was a huge backlash against uh, nuclear power. Forbes called it the largest managerial disaster in business history. Between 1978 and 1985, utilities canceled 75 nuclear plants because they were too expensive, because they didn't wait for the market. And President Bush, George W. Bush did the same thing with corn ethanol, saying that now we have the future, now we know what's going to happen. It's a new ethanol era. It's coming and government can help. More than $20 billion in subsidies later and, the, and, and uh, the requirement to blend ethanol into petrol later, we've realized that it was incredibly costly and it wasn't the future. And we always wasted as much energy producing and transporting the corn ethanol than as we saved when using it, when you do a life cycle analysis. Today, the next big idea is wind and solar. And that's what we're trying to expand everywhere. That's what we're subsidizing. Uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel in Germany sounded just like Eisenhower did, just like Bush did, saying that now this is a new era of solar and wind, and we can be, take the first steps, and we can give it a push. The result wasn't that it made the country stronger and richer, and you've seen part of that story here. Instead, it was incredibly costly. In 2013, the government subsidies cost Germans $26 billion to generate electricity with a market price of $3 million. That's how costly it is. Wouldn't cost the average household more than an ice cream, as the energy minister put it. Now it costs the average household $350 a year. And the high energy prices are now 50% higher than in the rest of Europe. And mind you, they're quite high there as well. Electricity is becoming a luxury good in Germany, as Der Spiegel declared it recently. 
And we didn't get the national champions in Germany. Instead, we got the failed companies, more subsidies and tariffs against more efficient competitors from other places. Because it just doesn't generate enough electricity. Just to compensate for the annual increase in CO2 emissions from China's coal, you would have to build 140 huge wind turbines every week just to compensate for the increase. So if you're trying to compensate for all of it and for our own uh, emissions, well, that would, we would run out of land and shallow seabeds to put those turbines onto, and we would definitely run out of money. Is it a cheap price to pay for saving the world? for dealing with pollution and, and carbon dioxide, as they now put it. Well, the problem is that it hasn't had that result either, as you saw Dieter Helm, the energy expert, saying in one of the interviews. The sun doesn't always shine. The wind doesn't always blow. You need some backup capacity. And without nuclear, without fracking and natural gas, that's coal. So they're firing up new coal plants all the time. And in contrast to the United States and to the rest of Europe, Germany is now increasing its CO2 emissions despite the green transition that was supposed to deal with that, the incredibly costly energy transition, the mother of all unintended consequences, I would say. But unfortunately, the fact that they fail again and again doesn't stop them from trying again. They will find something new that they know will give them new opportunities, new photo opportunities, and new ideas. But the alternative is not to rely on them to find out the next step. The alternative is to rely on the millions of scientists and entrepreneurs who are experimenting with other ideas and in constantly finding new ways of making the old versions even better. Fracking is an example of that. Hydraulic fracking to get into the shale and get the ga natural gas and, and now the oil out of it as well. That was a crazy idea. George Mitchell the son of a very poor immigrant from Greece who used to tend the goats, he had this crazy idea that he could open the shale. And for decades, he experimenting with drilling holes in the shale between Dallas and Fort Worth and came up with nothing. And people felt sorry for him and thought he was crazy. But step by step, he refined the technologies, used the best ideas, and suddenly one day it worked out and it changed the world and it has lowered, reduced energy prices, and it has reduced CO2 emissions as well. This is not just the story of a brilliant entrepreneur who changes the world because he was a genius. It's also a story about the ecosystem that is the market. And this is the biggest difference between, um, between the planned economy, between regulation, and, and the market. Just look at the generations of innovation and entrepreneurship on which Mitchell's discovery depended. The slick water mixture that he used to open the shale was used by Union Pacific Resources in Texas, East Texas long before Mitchell used it. Hydraulic fracturing was pioneered in the 1940s of some of the ancestors of, uh, uh, of Standard Lind Oil and Gas Corporation, a spin-off of, of Standard Oil. And Halliburton created the first commercial wells. Horizontal drilling has a similarly complex background dependent on a long series of innovations by entrepreneurs going back to the 30s. And landing survey tools, rotary steerable systems, and downhole motors and precision tools, all those things was necessary. When Mitchell started drilling, he could rely on everyday use of an entire ecosystem of industries, 6,000 independent oil and gas companies, and a huge service system that is there and they're constantly refining their methods and their technologies to make them as efficient as possible. When you're trying to change the system top down, 
from the government side. You can't rely on that. That doesn't happen. You have to build that structure as well. You have to create those artificial incentives as well. And if something goes wrong, you distort the incentives and you're off completely, even if you have the right idea for the energy future. That ecosystem, the fact that we have millions of people constantly improving everything because of their own self-interest, that is what makes it possible for the brilliant entrepreneurs to come up with the next invention and the next solution to the, this solution. And as we know, natural gas is changing the world. It's clean, it emits much less CO2 than coal, etc., etc. Because of this development, uh, the mother of all ironies, in 2012, the United States became the first big international indu industrial economy to reach the United Nations' original Kyoto Protocol on reducing CO2 emissions, despite the fact that the United States never ratified it, never followed it. Germany, that pushed for it constantly, broke it again and again, and it cost them a big buck. So it seems to me, in conclusion, that the world needs fewer top-down planners and more crazy dreamers like George Mitchell, more of the ecosystem that is the market, more people who are venturing into new territory and exploring strange new ideas. We need more people who experiment with new technologies and solutions. And if they stray far off the consensus, that's only to be welcomed, because that's the only thing that will give us new knowledge and new results, and some of them failures, and that's an important knowledge as well. I don't know what comes next. It could be the next generation of nuclear power. It could be new material for solar technology. It could be cleaner gas or some version of fossil fuels. It could be better material for solar power, solar power in space where the sun always shines, or something else. I have no idea. And to be frank, neither do you and neither do our politicians, our chancellors, our, our presidents. So why don't we just stop doing that and at last give power to the people in, in a double meaning, giving them the power to explore those new opportunities as well. And this is why I am hopeful, because as the spread of electricity makes more people connected, more people around the world learn the latest knowledge. They learn what's going on, they get the tool to participate. Almost three billion people around the world now have access to the internet. Two of million, billion of them have it in their own pockets. The Chinese, who were completely shut off from all knowledge just a couple of decades ago, bought 100 million smartphones in only the last three uh, quarters. And with just one Google search, they use more computing power than the whole Apollo project used in the 11-year mission of putting a man on the moon. And right now, this month, a 12-year-old girl in Morocco gets access to electricity for the first time. She takes her first steps online when she connects that computer to the rest of the world. And she's about to enter that global world. She has access to the sum of mankind's knowledge, and she can add her own ingenuity to it. Our challenges are huge, and it will be problematic. But we also have more eyeballs than ever looking at our problems. We have more brains now constantly trying to figure out where to go next. The problem that everybody is talking about, that everybody is so concerned about, the problem that gives the energy to the whole environmental movement, the problem that we are using more energy around the world, is also the solution to the problem. Our thirst for energy gives more people the ability to solve our problems. Because we don't know, but there's power in numbers, and the more people that are connected, the more problems will be solved. And that's why I'm hopeful that we will see power to the people in the future.
Thank you. And uh, I guess we're rather pressed on time, but a few questions, yes? I think it's the, where the mic is, and then next, then it's you, sorry. Eminent domain is a terrible power of government, and I'm assuming that that is the way these people are losing their, their village. Have your studies in, in looking at energy, new energy of wind or solar, or even bringing electricity, however it was brought to that 12-year-old, what percentage, not money-wise, but what percentage of it do you think is being pushed onto people by eminent domain? Yeah. Well, that's a very good question, and, and it's an important question in this context, both the, uh, the Atavash, German context, and the fracking context. Because uh, one of the reasons why America is different and has um, made uh, much more progress when it comes to fracking is that despite the problems with eminent domain and so on, we do have a system of private property rights, which gives the, uh, the owner to the land, to the mineral rights, the, um, the revenue, the ability to negotiate, which is a reason why landowners and people locally welcome this development in so many places. And when I travel around the US and talk to people who, who have, have sell, sold mineral rights or leased it, um, what the, the hostility that they get come from, yes, from the environmental movement, but if it's from the locals, it's from those who do not have uh, shale under their land because they're not able to, to use it. Whereas in most other places, we don't have that system of private property rights. In Germany, when, when you have something under your land, the government comes and take, take it from you. And of course, that builds in resentment. It's ugly, and it's costly, and it creates all those pushbacks, and we're not going anywhere with this. That's, that's something that has had to happen. And unfortunately, when it comes to uh, electricity and energy around the world, that's the case in many instances around the world, because pro if you think that property rights is too um, little protected in the United States, well, you should see the rest of the world. So that happens uh, in, in, I can't give you a, percentage or anything like that, but I would say that few large-scale energy problem, uh, projects comes about without anything resembling uh, that, unfortunately. So that's another reason to strengthen property rights. Um, when you were talking about the poor not getting electricity, I would think if you were talking to an environmentalist, they wouldn't disagree with you on that. Where they would disagree with you, they'd say, it's us who's using too much energy. Yeah. And it's not that the poor shouldn't get it, but that we should all use less. Yeah. That's right. Um, the problem with that argument is that everything that happens now is about the rest of the world. Yes, we took the first steps and we've used the most energy so far and put a lot of CO2 in the atmosphere and so on, but actually we could disappear. Uh, the United uh, North America, Northern Europe, uh, East Asia could disappear now and we would still have more uh, energy use, we still have more uh, pollution and CO2 from energy generation in, um, in the world three decades from now. Because there is power in numbers. There are six billion people out there who are now 
getting, getting power. So that makes the whole difference. So they would have to argue about that. They would have to stop them. And what they're saying when I bring them this argument is that, no, I'm all in favor of, of giving them access to electricity, but can't we do it small scale? Can't we learn from our mistake, do it with solar panels and so on? And yes, we could. I think there are trade-offs to be made, and they will look different in different places. I think Saharan Desert is an excellent place to have lots of, of solar panels, not Germany. It's pretty ugly weather, uh, actually, uh, in that part of the world. But, but, but definitely there. But when you look at it, the whole situation, and on average, using solar to bring power to villages like that, it, you'll get power to a third, as many as you would if you used a natural gas-fired plant or a coal plant or something like that. So you're making, and, and the resources aren't there to make it on the, in a huge extent. So you're making those trade-offs all the time. And those trade-offs, one of the costs are human lives, because that's what's at stake there. Oh. Thank you, you Johan. And uh, I hope now you know when I called Johan a powerful communicator of our ideas, I was telling the truth. Um, we're now going to break for reception. This is the point where I used to be able to have a glass of wine, and now I probably can't anymore. Um, so we're going to go out into the, uh, the lobby where there will be uh, beverages served, and then we're going to continue to the Vanderbilt Ballroom for lunch. And please bring all your belongings, because the room's going to be broken down as soon as we leave. Thanks so much. <laughs>